Well, guys, it really is a joy to be with you all this morning. I'm super grateful. I feel honored. There's many reasons to feel grateful and honored, but I'm most grateful and most honored in this moment because I get to open the Word and share the Word with you, explicate the Word, so that we all might hear the Word of God and respond to our King. Allow me to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this hour of worship. Lord, I'm asking for myself that you would give me clarity of speech, that I would have authentic conviction in my heart to preach your word boldly, and that you would give all of us ears to hear and hearts to obey your word. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. I really enjoy watching football. As you can imagine, though, with four daughters and a busy schedule, that doesn't get to happen very often. But when it does, I like to kick up the chair or kick up the, the thing on the, uh, the recliner and watch the game quietly, undisturbed. You know, I just, I just want to watch the game. I'm not a very uh, responsive person when I watch the game. I just want to see it played well. I, I'm not yelling at the screen or anything like that. Um, honestly, I don't have a ton of desire to go to a football game, pay a bunch of money for the seat that I'm only going to stand in front of and shout at the top of my lungs, lose my voice, shouting to someone who doesn't even know my name. I just like to watch the game from the comfort of my home and enjoy myself. But on occasion, within those occasions that I actually get to watch football, there are times when I respond with a, uh, a joy, a rejoicing that lacks self-awareness. Allow me to give you an example. And disclaimer, if you're a Buffalo's, Buffalo Bills fan, I'm sorry. Last year, in the playoffs of professional football, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills played. In that playoff game was some of the most insane two minutes in football history. Buffalo Bills score a touchdown, 13 seconds left in the fourth quarter, and everyone thinks the Bills win. I watched it this week as I was preparing my sermon just to relive in the Kansas City Chiefs game. You know where I'm going with this. What's unique about that moment was 13 seconds left, they thought they had won it. It's like, who else could score in, in 13 seconds? And so the, the camera zooms in on the coach, which this never happens. Coaches rarely celebrate before the game is over. But the coach is celebrating. The players are celebrating. Uh, I think it zooms in on Josh Allen, the quarterback. Forgive me for uh, the people who don't like football. They, it zooms in on his parents, and, it's, and they're just it's elated that their son has won the game. And then they zoom to the Chiefs. You know, they're just really bringing out the drama here. And everyone's deflated. Everyone's just hanging their head. But then the quarterback for the Chiefs gets 13 seconds to do something. And I'm this unexcited person just watching the game, and I just can't help myself. I'm, I'm, start, I'm pacing the room, watching the screen. My kids are like, what is dad doing right now? I can't believe what happens. They get far enough down, kick a field goal, tie it, and then win it in overtime. And again, the craziest 13 seconds into overtime ever played. And I'm losing it. 
I am overjoyed that my home team has just come back from something that's, I mean, is statistically improbable. And I'm rejoicing exceedingly. My response may have been over the top, but I just cannot believe what happened before my eyes. I went from an unenthusiastic sports viewer to a fanatic in 13 NFL seconds. Today, we're looking at a passage in Matthew that contains many of the reactions. It contains the first reactions and first responses to the arrival of King Jesus. As was mentioned last week from Matthew chapter 1, this king is the king of kings that all of scripture has been pointing to, and now he's finally here. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and he is Emmanuel, God with us, and his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the question before us is this, how should we be responding to Jesus, the one true king? What does it look like to respond fittingly to this king? You may have come here this morning, and if you're being honest, that question isn't really important to you. You've got other things going on in life, and you're trying to answer those questions. But let me just say that the question that I'm asking you this morning, that Matthew chapter 2 addresses, is the most important question. It defines your life and even your eternity. So I'd ask that you would listen to this question, even if you came here not thinking it was very important. Maybe you're here this morning and you assume you know the answer to my question. I'd encourage you to stay tuned in and hear because we live in a world full of deception. Many people in this world are misled and misguided on what it means to respond rightly to our king. So with that question before us, let's jump into Matthew chapter 2. Would you follow along as I read Matthew 2, 1 through 8? Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, hey, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. In these first two verses, we learn that there are wise men, or as some translations say, magi, who've come from the east, who seek to worship the one born king of the Jews. Now, just to be upfront, there are a few things that we cannot explain with certainty in this passage. First, we can't say for certain who these wise men exactly are. They could be from Persia or from Babylon. 
and they seem to be familiar with astrology and are acquainted with the Jewish religion in the Old Testament scriptures, as we'll see in a moment. Magicians and astrologers are not foreign in this time period, and so we, each nation has its own kind of wise men. That's why it makes it a little harder to figure out who they are. But don't let a lack of certainty about these characters bother you. In many ways, the understatement of, of, of who these men are highlights the significance of King Jesus and their response to him. They're not really what the story's about. It's about the king. We only need enough information about them to keep the story going so that we can see King Jesus. We also don't know much about this star other than it must have supernatural origins. It's a star that they saw back home and they will see it again in verse 9. And it's a star that will not only reappear, but it will guide them to the very place where Jesus was. But how is it that these men can see a star and think that it's a sign about Jesus? It seems like they are familiar with the final oracle of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Balaam prophesies to Balak, the king of Moab, and he says in chapter 24, verse 17, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Here we see a star being connected to the scepter of the king. And basically the oracle teaches us that a star will appear and a king will arise in Israel. And yet, as that prophecy will go on, his dominion extends beyond the borders of Israel. And so these wise men are connecting this star with that prophecy, the wise men, and in that they are convinced that God is broadcasting to the world that the one born king of the Jews has come. And now they journey to Jerusalem in search of the king. However, before meeting King Herod, they meet another king. Or before meeting King Jesus, they meet another king named King Herod. It's important for you to know that Herod is not a Jew and was appointed king of the Jews by Rome. The dilemma, however, is that the wise men have come to worship the one born king of the Jews. It's not difficult for us to imagine the awkwardness that would have been here for Herod. To the king, it sounds like they're questioning his right to the throne. It's like he's hearing, where's the real king of the Jews? We saw the star that affirms his right to come or to the throne, and we've come to worship him. And we see Herod's reaction to this news of Jesus in verse 3. He and all of Jerusalem are troubled. And it's natural for Herod to feel this way. He's not of the lineage of King David. He's just an appointed ruler by the Romans. In fact, we have knowledge from other sources in history that Herod was known for being paranoid about rivals and losing his position. He had family members killed who he thought threatened his position of authority. And along with him, the Jews are troubled at this news from the wise men. And that's something that will continue throughout Matthew's gospel. Many Jews are troubled, bothered, or indifferent to their king. It's just like the parable of the wedding feast that we heard from that happens later in Matthew's gospel. If you know that parable, you know that it's a reference to the Jews. 
The king has put together this beautiful feast for his king, uh, for his son. And now he's sent out invitations to those he's invited saying, hey, it's time to come. You knew about it. It's like, you've got to save the date. Now it's time to come. And what do they do? It says they don't come. The text reads, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. And what we have in a troubled Jerusalem is in seed form this apathy that will later grow into rejection for the king. The Jews' own promised king is reported to have been born, and they pay no attention. No one travels the six miles to Bethlehem. And Matthew wants us to see the massive contrast between the Jews troubled and these wise men willing to travel however far it takes to see the one born king of the Jews. So how does King Herod respond in his troubled state to the news of King Jesus. Well, in his troubled state, he goes into war mode, if you will. He does some recon on the situation before him. In verses 4 through 6, he gathers the chief priests and scribes of the Jewish faith, and he asks them, where do the scriptures say this king's going to be born? You can tell he's, well, he knows his Bible well. And so they tell him that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. They quote from Micah 5, and they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A prophecy that happens some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, some of you are like the Bereans in the book of Acts who are always examining your scriptures to see if things are so. And you've noticed that Micah 5.2 doesn't look exactly like this reference in Matthew chapter 2. What is Matthew up to when he does this? Well, he's connecting Micah 5.2 with 2 Samuel 5.2, which talks about the king as the shepherd of Israel. The introduction, as one commentator puts it, of the words of 2 Samuel 5.2 to this quote in Matthew 5.2 makes clearer the status of Jesus as the son of David, born in the city of David, to rule like David over the people of God. In other words, Matthew is being very intentional with his wording, and he wants his readers to be clear that Jesus is the promised son of King David, the one born king just as he asserted in chapter 1, verse 1. So now, coming back to our passage, Herod has the info he needed from the Jewish leaders that the king will be born in Bethlehem, and now Herod secretly summons the wise men in verse 7 to ask them when that star appeared. And his goal in this little powwow is to determine the timing of the star so that he can determine the timing of the birth. And after that seemingly innocent conversation, as we, as we see now, Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem in search of the child born king of the Jews. Herod even requests that the wise men return to Jerusalem with word of the child so that he may come and worship this newborn king as well. Now, if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 2, or really the whole of Matthew, 
you know, there's more going on here. If we zoom out to the rest of chapter 2, King Herod is not after this child to worship him, but to kill him as he attempts to do so in 2 verse 16. And that opposition motif begins in this chapter. It takes us through Matthew's gospel all the way to the cross. Jesus is opposed in his coming. He's opposed in his ministry. And that opposition culminates in his death. Now, it's a fair question to wonder, why do people respond so differently to Jesus? I don't know if you've ever asked that question before. Scripture seems so clear. He's the king of kings. He's the one to be worshipped. Why do people respond so differently to him? I'd like to submit to you that the responses, the hostile responses to Jesus, are part of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Just as Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God curses them for their sin and disobedience. He then curses the serpent, saying, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we see that on full display in Matthew chapter 2. We see the seed of the serpent, King Herod, attacking the seed of the woman, Jesus. And this explains why some people respond by rejecting the king instead of worshiping the king. They're born this way. Their father is the devil, as Jesus says in John 8. They want nothing to do with Jesus. There's hostility because they're just like their dad. They hate Jesus from birth. But not all are of the seed of the serpent. Those of another seed do not respond with hostility, but with wholehearted worship, which is what we see in our last four verses. Would you look, at me, look with me at Matthew 2, 9 through 12? After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Starting in verse 9, we see the description of the wise men's journey to Bethlehem, a town about six miles from Jerusalem. And while they are traveling, the same star that they had seen before reappears. And not only does it reappear, it guides them to where Jesus is. Can you just imagine for a moment the excitement these men would have had after all their effort to get here to see him? Scholars think that if he had come from Babylon, it would have been a 40-day journey, some 700-plus miles just to get to Jerusalem. This is one way, spending 40 days to find him. And now they have the star of the king leading them right where they want to go. Verse 10 records their excitement, saying, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
in seminary. I wasn't allowed to use a lot of adjectives and adverbs because you just had to get to the point, but Matthew goes way beyond that. And he says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Not only did they rejoice, they rejoiced exceedingly. Not only did they rejoice exceedingly, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. Not only did they rejoice exceedingly with joy, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Do you see it? He is after something. I mean, how exuberant does the rejoicing have to be for Matthew to write this as emphatically as he does? This is so far from what the Jews did when they heard about the king. A much different response. They were troubled, troubled by this star back in Jerusalem. And the wise men are going crazier than I could have ever done in front of that football screen when I was watching my chiefs. And honestly, they're doing it for way better reasons. They are rejoicing in one who truly matters, the one that we get to be with forever, the king of all kings, the promised son of David, the son of Abraham, who is God with us and who will save his people from their sins. That's something to be rejoicing about. And in their rejoicing, they enter the house and they see the child. And as Matthew records, they fall down and they worship him. They have found the king. They fall prostrate before him with reverent fear and adoration. And then they offer costly gifts to Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts truly fit for a king. And what's more? Here we begin to see the fulfillment of the scripture's prophecies that the nations will come and they will worship the king of kings who rules over God's people. Listen as I read from a few places. You don't have to turn here. Psalm 72, 10 and 11 reads, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. Isaiah 60 verse 6 reads, They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Do you hear the echo of those verses in Matthew chapter 2? It's happening. The king has come and the nations are going to respond to him with worship. These wise men show that he is that king, that kings from other countries will come and acknowledge his authority and that his authority extends beyond the borders of Israel. Indeed, it goes to the very ends of the earth and they all will worship the king. And this worship that begins in Bethlehem isn't meant to stay here. It's not a one-time deal. Their worship was what the, is but the beginning of those who will worship the king. More men, women, boys, and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to him. They will worship him. And that worship will culminate when the king returns with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, king over all the nations. And with our last verse, we learn that on this night of worship, that recon mission that we talked about a minute ago of King Herod, it backfires. The wise men were helped by Herod, but the wise men don't help Herod back. They're warned in a dream not to return to him, and so they leave for their homeland by a different route. 
What an incredible passage that contains for us the first responses to the arrival of the king. Now, having seen those responses to Jesus, I want to ask my question again. What does your response to Jesus look like? Looking at your life, what has been your response to King Jesus? Has it been indifferent like the Jews? You're not even willing to travel six miles to answer the most important question of your life? Hostile like Herod? Perhaps you're an angry person who wants to to get rid of the authenticity of the gospel, the, the truth of it? Or is your response like the worship of these wise men? Hopefully it's clear in your mind that in light of our passage this morning, wholehearted worship is the only fitting response to Jesus. It's what the Bible is calling us to. That's how we respond. How do we do that? Based on our passage, I want to unpack the three aspects of worship that I see here. Worship means believing the king. Worship means rejoicing in the king. Worship means being devoted to the king. First, believing. These wise men from the east saw the star that signaled the coming of the king, and they respond with belief. They didn't, excuse me, scoff at it or act indifferent or react with rejection. They respond by receiving the news that their king had come, and they evidence that by traveling all that way and by giving their greatest treasures. I want to ask you this morning, Have you accepted that Jesus is the one true king who calls you to worship him? Have you repented of your sins, making a clean break with your lifestyle of sin? And have you believed in the king who comes to save people from their sins? Do you gladly submit to the authority of Christ over you? Or are you still working with a belief that you're the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. I have to tell you that all other responses to Christ than worship that begins with repentance and faith are responses that will cost you your life. You will die in your sin, forfeit your soul, and suffer eternally in a place where the torment never lets up. You will experience a loneliness and isolation that you can't even imagine. If you do not come to your king in response, with a response of repentance and faith, you will experience a regret like you've never experienced. Just imagine with me for a moment your worst day. Separation from God, eternally in hell is infinitely worse than that day you've ever than than any day you've ever experienced. It will never let up. There will be no ray of hope, no silver lining, no new day. There's no second chances, no do-overs, no bailouts. This awaits you apart from your repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not all. Not only will you receive this punishment for your rejection of Christ, I also want you to know that you're lo- what you're losing in rejecting Christ. 
You receive punishment when you reject Christ, but you also lose out on the one who can make you whole. You were made to worship God and enjoy him forever. And apart from a relationship with Christ, you are missing out on and falling short of the divine purpose for your existence. Let me just explain who you're missing out on. Yes, he's Jesus, the Son of God, who came into this world, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But he's the Savior of those in sin. He's the Savior who can save you from your sin and its penalty. Don't you get it? The one through whom all things was created so loved the world and is so willing to save you that he became human so that he could die the death human sinners deserve and give them the life they could never earn. Do you realize what kind of love this is? That someone would be this kind, this gracious, this willing to meet your greatest need of salvation from sin. So much so that he laid down his life for us, even as we spat on him and spurned his love. Some of you here have experienced love from another person that you would never want to lose. This king's love for sinners is incomparable and immeasurably more than the love anyone else could give you. Dear unbelieving friend, do you you see the heart of our Savior for sinners? If you reject Jesus, you lose Jesus. That may sound simple and like a duh, but I'm trying to tell you, you have your greatest joy and in, by worshiping the one who created you and you're rejecting that. That means the greatest joy you could ever experience will always evade you and you'll never get to lay your hands on it. You were created to worship Jesus. There's no one in whom your soul could ever be more satisfied in. There's none. And he bids you to come to him. Come to the one, dear unbelieving friend who can wash you from all your guilt, all your sin, all the wrath that you deserve from God, and he will give you himself. You may be upset that hell awaits those who reject Jesus, but I need you to see that that punishment is so great because Jesus is so precious. He's the joy that you were created to experience. Please come to the one who can save you and give you life in his name. So we see that we worship the king by believing in the king. We also see that we worship the king by rejoicing in the king. Those wise men were overjoyed when they met Jesus. What did the text say? It said rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And it ought to be no different for us. When we are clear about who Jesus is and what he does for us, there ought to be a joy like we've never experienced. But if you're like me, that joy isn't always a reality moment by moment. I'd like to ask you, how's your joy in the Lord right now? Is your joy meter a little low? I'm not simply asking, are you always happy? I'm asking, if there's a deep-seated joy in you that can sustain you and allow you to bear under all that the Lord brings into your life, or are you struggling with apathy and half-hearted worship? 
if you're being honest, and that's you, what do you think is behind that struggle for joy? What's causing it? A lot of times it's because someone or something has become bigger to you than Jesus. Maybe it's your plans that have become more important to you than the person of Jesus you worship. Maybe it's a career choice or a relationship that you want or your upcoming retirement that has you tentative about the Lord. You're nervous that he's going to get in your way. You want what you have planned and now you're concerned that the cost of following Christ might cost you that, whatever that is. And so your want for things to go your way is robbing you of joy in the Lord. Rather than your life being a blank check that you've signed at the bottom and you leave the amount out so that God can fill it in for whatever he pleases to receive from you, you've given him a check with an amount filled out and said, this is how much I'm giving to you, Lord, of my life. I want to tell you that in holding back from God, you are killing your own joy. It's a joy killer. You were made to enjoy God forever. To hold back from him is to kill your own joy. These wise men traveled all this way to give to the king their treasures and then travel all those miles back home. This is months out of their schedule to worship the king. The cost was secondary to these wise men when they considered who Christ is. So where are you when it comes to your devotion to the Lord? Where are you at? Does the cost have you tentative these days? Are your plans in life becoming more important than the person of Christ? Maybe it's your problems in life that seem bigger than Jesus. Many people are looking for a make-it-through-the-day gospel. I heard a sermon by a preacher once, and he said this, People ain't worried about no blood on a cross. They're just trying to make it through the day. He was referring to people who think their problems are so big in the present that they don't have time for their eternal problem of condemnation. Of course, you and I know that that is hellishly false. Nothing should become more important than our eternal problem of sin. But yet, from time to time, if you're being honest, your joy in the Lord is starved by the problems you've been facing because they've become bigger to you than the person of Christ. Whether it's issues at work or issues in your home or issues with friends and family. Just asking the question, have you lost sight of the one whom your soul loves because you've not right-sized your problems, right-sized them? If I'm being honest, this is an area that I struggle in. I've noticed times in my life where my worship is tepid because I've grown anxious over the problems before me. And it always, without, without exception, it kills my joy. It kills my joy when I'm not looking at things in life with eyes of faith fixed on Jesus. Anything that you prioritize over Jesus is a joy killer. Maybe you're guarding your schedule so that your me time doesn't get taken away by other things. Maybe you guard your schedule so that you have plenty of time for a hobby. I'm not saying that hobbies are wrong. Don't hear me that. They're, they're great. I like to watch football. But what is your priority when you're scheduling? 
Are you guarding your me time? Or are you guarding in your scheduled time so that you can be there for others? Do you see the difference? I'm guarding my schedule for others. I want to be available for them. I'm not saying from this time to this time, ain't nobody getting to it because it's my time. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just saying that's killing your joy. I promise you that because I've done it myself. It robs you of the joy that is yours in the Lord. He's the greatest joy you could ever experience. Whatever the cause is for you, I just, I'm just giving out a, a few common ones. Whatever the cause is, the solution is the same. You and I, by the grace of God, must ruthlessly eliminate everything that stifles and threatens our rejoicing in the King. In our pursuit of joy, we gain by letting go. We do not want our hearts adoring anything more than Christ. We want nothing making us more excited than the person of Christ. As those who've truly understood who Jesus is, our hearts are to have no rivals for its attention, affection, or adoration. So brothers and sisters, put to death the idols of your heart for the sake of your eternity and relationship with Christ. Your joy is on the line. We worship the king by believing in the king. We worship the king by rejoicing in the king. We also rejoice, or we worship the king by being devoted to him. The wise men show their devotion to the king in their willingness to spend all that time to travel all that way to worship him. They show it in their costly gift to honor him. They even show their devotion in listening to the warning in the dream. They disobey Herod and return by another way. These men are devoted to the king. And we are to worship Jesus by being devoted to him. Just as Paul commanded in Romans 12.1, we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. I want you to see the link between presenting yourself, devoting yourself and worship. worship our, worshiping our king means giving ourselves in wholehearted, full body, devotion to him. What does that look like, though? No doubt you're familiar with the language of time, talents, and treasures. We show our devotion to our king in the same way, by devoting our time to him, devoting our talents to him, and devoting our treasures to what the king, to the king, just like these wise men. So, how do we do that? How do we devote ourselves and those things to the Lord? I think the best way to see that is we do that by devoting ourselves to his mission. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to make them into a family of faith and love one another. And so our devotion to the Lord is seen in our time, talents, and treasures being used for the advancement of Christ's kingdom and the good of his church. And don't just believe me when I say that. Believe the Bible, because that's exactly where Matthew's going. He goes there in the Great Commission. Do you remember how it starts? It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Christ's kingly authority. And what's the response? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. You 
and I are called to worship the king by being devoted to his mission to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I just want to say, let's make sure that that's a get-to mission, not a have-to mission. We get to spend and be spent for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. Our passage is a picture of the reality that the king is being announced to the nations and they will come and worship. You and I, as we tell the gospel to others, as we tell them about the king, we're inviting them in to the worship of the king. The Great Commission is a worship mission so that they might enjoy him as we enjoy him. Jesus is the one true king who is to be worshipped by all. So I'm calling you here, the brothers and sisters at Proclamation, to wholeheartedly worship this worthy king by believing in him, by rejoicing in him, and by being devoted to his worship mission. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for this hour of worship where we get to sit and meditate on your word and how we are doing in light of it. Father, you give us an opportunity to think about our Savior, think where we've been doing wrong, and we get to come to him in repentance and say, Father, please help me to overcome this, to overcome that, for your glory, for my enjoyment. Lord, what a special, what an incredible time this is to hear your word and to, by your grace, go and live in light of it. So I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would show us all that Jesus is the one true king and that in seeing Jesus, we would believe with all that we are that he is our joy. And convinced of this, we would give our lives in complete devotion to the king who is worthy of worship. I ask this in your son's name. Amen.